This is the Memory Palace. I'm Nate DeMeo. Six scenes from the life of William James Sidus. Wonderful boy. One. If you lived in a one-dimensional world, you'd be a single point on a line. You could move forward and backward, and that would be it. So if you were walking down that straight line, and there was someone in your way, you'd be stuck. You couldn't walk around them, because there's no left or right in a one-dimensional world. There is in a two-dimensional world. And if you lived in a two-dimensional world, you could move left and right, and you could move backward and forward. But if you were walking around and you ran into a wall, again you'd be stuck. Because there's no up or down in the two-dimensional world. Now, of course, there is in our three-dimensional world. You can climb over things, you can walk around them. But if you were trapped in a box, in a cell, with no windows or doors, you'd be stuck. Not if you lived in a four-dimensional world. In a four-dimensional world, where you could step right out of the box, you could walk through the walls of the cell. No walls could hold you. The rules of our three-dimensional world that say you can only move in variations of up and down, combinations of forward and back and left and right, they wouldn't apply to you. And that's strange and hard to get your head around. Fourth-dimensional space is a theoretical abstraction that mathematicians and physicists find useful in ways that non-mathematicians like me we're just going to have to trust them on. On a snowy night in January 1910, a lecturer at Harvard defined fourth dimensional space this way. A speculative realm of incomprehensibly involved relationships. But on that snowy night in January 1910, the speaker did his best to make them comprehensible. He used diagrams. He coined words like parallelopodon and hecatonic saharodon. And at the end of the talk, a distinguished professor from MIT stood around answering questions from reporters. The professor predicted that the lecturer, William James Sidus, would become one of the greatest scientists of the 20th century. Sidus, meanwhile, went home. It was past his bedtime. He was 11 years old. 2. Boris Sidus had been on a trip to Chicago for a symposium. He was a renowned Harvard psychologist and he had been away from his wife, Sarah, and their three-year-old son, William James, for about a week. He came home on his birthday, just in time for a celebratory dinner with family and friends. And young William James, young Bill, then three years old, had a gift for his dad. He walked into the dining room and presented his father with a copy of Caesar's account of the Gaelic Wars in its original Latin. But the book wasn't the gift. The gift was that Bill could read it. The gift was that in the week his father had been away in Chicago, three-year-old Bill had taken his mother's old Latin textbook off the shelf and taught himself Latin. His father was pleased, though not necessarily surprised. He had been training Bill. From birth, little Bill had been both beloved son and guinea pig in his father's psychological experiments. There was no doubt that the boy was exceptionally bright. His parents were, their parents were. But Boris Sidus believed there was extraordinary genius there, believed that if his son drilled enough, and as his father, if he answered every question, encouraged every interest, he could unleash an unparalleled intellect. And the people who gathered to celebrate Boris's birthday, the people who heard three-year-old Bill read about the power struggle between the Avreni and Sequani tribes of Gaul in the first century before the Common Era, they congratulated Boris on having done just that. Three. A reporter knocked on the door and asked for Bill. 
Bill Sidus had graduated from Harvard the day before, cum laude at 16. The reporter wanted to know about his plans for the future. Bill was history's youngest Harvard alum. The rest of his life story was yet to be written. The first part of it, however, had been written over and over. Bill Sidus had already spent years in the public eye. Newspapers had charted his exploits. Readers could rattle off his achievements like baseball statistics. The nine languages he knew by the time he was eight. The other one that he had invented with its eight different verb tenses. The three months it took him to blow through four years worth of high school instruction. They knew that he'd passed the Harvard and MIT entrance exams before he'd turned 10. That he'd read the New York Times every day since he was 18 months old. They'd followed the debates among psychologists who'd wrung their hands over the intensity of his studies. Among educators who argued about whether genius could be taught. Among the theosophists who wondered if Bill Sidus was the Greek mathematician Euclid reincarnated. So when he sat down with the reporter on the day after his graduation, readers wanted to know how he planned to make his mark in the world, which great secrets of the universe he would attempt to unlock first, which pervasive human miseries he would endeavor to alleviate. But 16 and weary and wary of the spotlight, Bill Sidus answered that he wanted to be left alone. Four. Bill Sidus, now in his 20s, walked into the office of the Eastern Massachusetts Street Railway Company in downtown Boston. It was his first day of work. He had held many jobs since graduating from Harvard. First, he taught math and science at Rice University in Texas, but he quit after a year. He didn't like being ridiculed by his students, who were all older than their professor. And after that, academic job offers stopped coming. But the reporters did not. How did he plan to get back on track, they asked. Was he squandering his talents? He had such incredible gifts, such limitless promise. Did he realize that he was letting people down? And in 1919, after he was arrested during a socialist May Day parade that had turned violent, the questions came laced with venom. Who did he think he was? Where did he get off? How can this strange young man be that same wonderful boy? By the time he walked into the office of the Eastern Massachusetts Street Railway Company, Bill Sidus had stopped answering questions. He'd stopped doing much of anything, as far as anyone knew. He lived under assumed names. He took menial jobs where no one expected anything of him, except to punch in, work an honest day, and punch out. But inevitably, people would figure out that he was the wonderful boy they'd read about some years ago. Some reporter would come snooping around, and Bill would try to slip away again, make up another name, find another job. The one at the Eastern Massachusetts Street Railway Company looked ideal. The ad said they were looking for someone to run an adding machine, and he could do that. He could do that really well. He had to be focused and hyper-detail-oriented. You didn't have room for distraction and chit-chat about your life. You could turn off your mind and just work. And it was in an industry that he loved, really loved. Since he was a boy, Sidus had collected the tickets they gave you when you transferred from one streetcar to another. He was fascinated by streetcar maps, by how the routes were organized, how the systems of fares and departure times and rules of the road differed from town to town and state to state. He found as much beauty and fascination in transportation routes as he did in the movements of celestial objects. 
And so getting the chance to run these particular numbers, keep these books, and keep to himself, and escape the questions and the expectations that haunted and held him in their grasps, felt perfect. But when he reported to work that first day, the office manager told him that he knew who he was, and they were delighted to have a famous genius on the Eastern Massachusetts Street Railway Company team. They didn't want him to run an adding machine. They wanted him to run the whole thing, to do for their systems and profits what other people wanted him to do for medicine or physics or chemistry or higher mathematics, when all he wanted was to be invisible. Bill Sidus walked out, stepped onto a streetcar, and cried all the way home. Five. A reporter knocked on the door and asked for Bill. Bill Sidus was 39 years old. She worked for a local paper, although an account of her interview with Sidus made it into a Where Are They Now article by James Thurber in The New Yorker. Where he was now was living alone in a clean but threadbare efficiency apartment in South Boston. He had never married, likely had never been kissed. He worked as a clerk for the city's unemployment office in the day and worked at night on a history of a Native American tribe he called the Akamakamiset. It was one of several books he had written under pseudonyms, written in lieu of the scientific treatises that had been predicted by his admirers long before, one that purported to be a 100,000-year history of Native peoples of North America, one a now-lost manuscript in the lost city of Atlantis, an article on the importance of Jersey City, New Jersey and the historical development of the United States, a translation of Chekhov's An Unwilling Tragedian, treatises on a political philosophy he called libertarianism, a word he may well have coined, a 300-page argument for the banning of two-way streets called Collisions in Street and Highway Transportation, and his defining work, a book that the New Yorker article held up as evidence that Sidus had, after all, gone totally bananas, a book that even a staunch Sidus defender decades later called quite possibly the most boring book ever written. The book is called Notes on the Collection of Transfers. It is a 306-page, heavily illustrated guide for people who enjoyed collecting streetcar transfer tickets. In his introduction, he admits that he may have been the only person who did, but he thought the book might inspire others to take up the hobby. It was a near-complete taxonomy of streetcar transfers. From the unique streetcar to ferry transfer that you could take from Portsmouth, New Hampshire to Badger's Island, to the complex dance of repeat and exchange transfers that would take you from East 14th Street to 4th Avenue northbound to 23rd Street westbound to Broadway northbound and finally westbound on 34th Street in Manhattan. Citus claims that that is one of only two cases in the whole New York rail system that a traveler can enjoy the special thrill of what he calls the triple repeat transfer. A thrill that was likely lost in the readers of The New Yorker, who, like the rest of America, either laughed at or pitied the strange man that the wonderful boy had become. Sidus spent the next several years suing the magazine for invasion of privacy, taking it, as the saying goes, all the way to the Supreme Court, newspaper reporters following the story, and him, all the way. He lost the case, and died not long after, from a cerebral hemorrhage at 46 years old. 6. On a summer afternoon in 1926, several children and their parents went to a garden party in the backyard of a private home in Tuckahoe, New York. 
It was organized by something called the League for Fostering Genius. The kids were all prodigies, at least in the eyes of their parents. And everyone ate canapes and stood up straight, put their best feet forward, and watched performances of precocity from their gathered geniuses. From the 10-year-old composer, the 9-year-old orator, the 3-year-old opera expert, and the 28-year-old streetcar transfer ticket collector. 15 years after his speech at Harvard about what he had learned about the theoretical implications of fourth dimensional space, Bill Sidus spoke about the theoretical implications of streetcar transfers. He said if someone knew, as he did, the roots of the nation's streetcar systems, knew the fare structures for every municipality, knew the rules and formulas that govern the use of transfer tickets, it would be possible to ride from one point on any streetcar line to any point on any other line. A single ticket could take you anywhere. You could hop on a streetcar in South Boston, buy a single fare, and transfer to a streetcar in the Back Bay, to one in Somerville, to one in Cambridge, and on and on and on to Worcester, or Poughkeepsie, or Baltimore, or Philadelphia, or New Haven, or Islip, or Columbus, or Fort Wayne, or Virginia Beach, or New Orleans, or Jersey City, or Detroit, or Gary, or Rehoboth Beach, or Buffalo, or Kansas City, or Houston, or Providence, riding on cars where no one knew or cared who you were, completely free, and go anywhere you wanted to go, where no one could find you and be whoever you wanted to be.